Amen. That's right, Bobby. We are in world religions, cults, and the occult topic number eight, and it is Mormonism. That's right, Mormonism. That's right. And as you turn to that workbook, because yes, we are going to be in the workbook, if you can believe that. On the topic of the source of authority, page three on the section of Mormonism, uh, we've already, as you turn there by recap, the whole thing by a recap is that the James 1.5, they base the whole thing on a feeling. You can't base uh, truth, anything on a feeling, because you can be deceived by your feelings. Number two, which account? And we're going to see that again. What source of truth? Which account? Which hill? Which person? What entity? Nothing matches up. It's not consistent. Uh, even your own writings are going to disagree with one another. There's no archaeological evidence. Mormon does not mean more good. Okay, it means uh, the boogie monster, basically. Uh, it's also extremely racist. Joseph Smith was not a, quote, lamb led to the slaughter and martyr. He shot people in return. That's not being a martyr. He was into Freemasonry. He was also into witchcraft, heavy-duty witchcraft. Okay, and a lot of these things is part of what he hodgepodge the Book of Mormon and other issues with. Uh, also, they're not unified. Remember his bold quote? He did what not even Jesus Christ could do. He was able to keep everyone together. No, you're not. You got all kinds of splinter groups in Mormons. You didn't do that. And, of course, they're false teaching with baptism of the dead, okay, which is not biblical at all. And then last time he says, well, what do you get? Well, that's where we dealt with that whole page there, Mormonism in a nutshell. So basically, when you make stuff up and you just take a piece from here and a piece from there and here a little there, here everywhere, what do you get? You get a mishmash of some messed up stuff. And that was what all the, uh, last week was all about. Now you're saying, well, where, in all, where did they get this? I get it that he wasn't just, again, remember, I've changed my tune. I used to say he was a great storyteller. Well, he ain't just a storyteller, he's a plagiarist, because he's grabbing from everything, right, and piecemealing it together, right? So where does he get this from? Well, that's the issue that we're going to see tonight, is where they get it from, okay, this is going to be the topic of the source of what they consider authority when it comes to truth, their belief system, and why they would make the statement that their truth is a better truth than what you and I would have. But let's take a look at that at the top of the page there, under the source of authority. It says, Mormons accept how many books as scripture? Four. Not really four, okay? Even though technically they say four, but it really is three. We'll see that in a second, okay? Mormons believe that the canon of scripture was what? Not closed when the Bible was completed. So basically, what are they saying? That you can continue to get a new, new word from God, a new revelation from God. And how many times we've already dealt with that, whether it be in the Hinduism or the New Age study. And it's the same thing you got, unfortunately, with the charismatic French folks. That mindset that you can get a new, new word from God. Right? No. And I said it how many times? Since when did this book become old-fashioned? Since when did this book become not enough, not sufficient? Everything we need for life and godliness, the Bible says, is right here in this book. Everything you need to know. God doesn't tell us everything, uh, okay, but everything we need to know is right here in this book, okay? Uh, but again, that's, not what, that's what these people say. Mormons say, no, no, there's more outside the Bible, right? And that's what Joseph Smith got, a new... But the, the point is, once you go out that, whether you're a Mormon, whether you're a charismatic, who says, you know, God told me to give you a new word, a new revelation, God... Stop, right, number one, then if that's truly true, and if this really is a new word really from God, then how come we're not writing a new New Testament? If it's really new, really from God, really for us, why aren't we doing that? Well, nobody thinks that because that would, you know, that's, wow, that's, yeah, that's not a good thing, right? Yeah, or you're right. All right, number two, if you're that belief today, you're not a Mormon, but you profess to be a Christian, you're charismatic, whatever, okay, then you just lost all basis to witness to a Mormon. Right? Because you say that you can get a new revelation. How am I going to tell these Mormons that what they believe in is not a new revelation? You, you cut yourself with the... No, 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 no. Right? This is all you need. As we saw before, this is why in our introduction, why are there so many different world religions? Why are there so many different versions of eternal truth? Why is there so many different uh, cults and the occult? Why? Because even those that would say they follow the Bible, they don't. It's either something else other than the Bible or professedly the Bible, but other things. But as we're going to see even tonight when it comes to Mormonism, when push comes to shove, guess what you follow? Not the Bible. You follow your other sources of truth. That's the little dance. That's the little game uh, that's being played. So technically, they say four, but it's really not. It really is three. And we'll get to even more in, in a second. So Now, they believe that the Bible is the word of God, tongue-in-cheek, because at the same time, they deny that it has been translated correctly and believe that it has been corrupted is your first blank there, corrupted since the days of the apostles. Well, you can't have your cake and eat it too. 
right? So uh, you sit there and say it's corrupted, but then on paper anyway, you say this is one of your four sources of truth. Why would you include a corrupted version of truth in your four sources of truth? So it doesn't make sense either way, okay, in, in reality, okay? Now, in addition to the Bible, here's really what they follow, because it really isn't the Bible. Uh, Mormons believe, here it is, the Book of Mormon, number one, right? Number two, doctrine and covenants, right? Number three, the pearl of great price. And they believe that these contain, notice the little g there, God's revelation, right? Now, right there, you got three other things that they're going to go to outside the Bible, that's why it's so challenging to try to witness to them. Also, even as we saw before many times, even with a Catholic or somebody else, you've got multiple sources of truth. You try to point something out in the Scripture, and what do they say? Well, the Pope said. Well, then you try to point out, well, that's not what the Bible says. It says over here, well, the church council ruled. And it's the same thing. You try to witness to a Mormon, even in what they say is a corrupted book, the Bible, which, again, is duplicit because you say it's a source of truth, but it's corrupted, so why would you? Okay, whatever. But you try to point it out to them, and what do they say? Well, the Pearl of Great Price. Well, the Book of Mormon. Well, it's the same dance around, okay, uh, is what they do, all right? Now, whenever Mormon belief contradicts the Bible, which happens a lot, okay, uh, here's what they do. Here's the dance. Mormons say that that particular part of the Bible is what? Translated incorrectly. Now, isn't that convenient? Isn't that a convenient thing in your pocket? Every time you get pointed out that your belief is inconsistent, unscriptural, what do you do? What's your, what's your game plan? Well, that part's inconsistent. And again, who puts that in the... So you're the arbitrator between the Scripture and what's true and what's not true, in essence. That makes you God. Right? But it's great. But that's the little game that gets played on, on when you try to reach out. And that the correct doctrine is in one of the Mormon Scriptures. Right? So, well, okay, well, that's... But over here, these other three, they're more accurate, and that's what we rely upon. So you, you can't get me on that one. All right, let's continue on. Therefore, the Bible is ultimately... They say it's a source of truth. Underline that word there. They say it's rejected. The Bible with the Mormons is rejected as the infallible word of God. Right? Now, again, what's the premise that they have in the media? Even other Christians sometimes, professing Christians, whatever, would have this mindset. Well, Mormons are Christians just like us. Wow, you might have that promotion on TV. That doesn't make it right. But here we are now at the ultimate source of truth, not just your false teaching. Right? You don't have the same Jesus. You don't have the same God. You don't even have the same source of truth as we do. We got one and one. That's it. The Bible. You say this is one of your sources of the Bible, so that, but you ultimately reject this as an infallible source of truth. How is that Christian? How is that Christianity? Nothing at all what we believe in. Again, uh, repeatedly over and over and over again. Now, here's what they say. Quote, we believe the Bible to be the word of God as far as it's translated correctly. But we also believe that the Book of Mormon to be the word of God. So again, they follow up with this. We believe that, listen, here's another danger. We believe all that God has revealed and all that he does now reveal, which means it continues on. So now you get new versions and stuff. But listen to this. And we believe that he will yet reveal many great and important things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Well, wait a second. Right? So I get your justification. I don't agree with it. That you say that you got a new, new revelation. Right? But you just admitted that there's, you expect new, newer revelations to come even after your supposed new revelation. Well, how do you know you were right? Because somebody can come along later and counteract you with their new revelation, which is precisely what they do all the time, right? Even in their splinter grips, right? Well, God told me, oh, here we have new light that it's okay for. I go, oh, what's that? Do we, oh, no, we weren't wrong. We have a new revelation that this is. How do you ever know ultimately really the source of truth? You don't. Okay, but again, they say the Bible, it's really not. It's back to those three, the Doctrine and Covenants, the Prologate Price, and the Book of Mormon. So let's get into those three mainly tonight. Are they trustworthy? Are they reliable? Are they, like what we would say, solid and true, trustworthy like the Bible? Absolutely not. Now, the key phrase you're going to see throughout all these three tonight is the key word we've been saying with this whole thing called Mormonism, and that is, it's a story. Not about a man named Jed who could barely keep his family fed. Not that story. <laughs> but you might as well be. I mean, whoa, this is made up stuff. Right? We're going to get into what did he base the Book of Mormon into, and it's called two, a couple things. One, the golden plates that he supposedly translated. And on there was this thing called Reformed Egyptian. Remember that? And he also had some other Egyptian uh, things. We'll get into that tonight. But is that really real? 
Okay, nah, I don't think so, but let's take a look at that. The Book of Mormon tells a story, underline that, put a circle around it, arrows pointing towards it, firecrackers, do a couple bombs, whatever. Highlight that word, because that's the whole key word, story, right? And he didn't just make it up. He's going from all over stuff. He's a good cut and pacer. He would like that Control-C, Control-V function, with all due respect that we have on computers today. Isn't that awesome? You don't have to retype, just chop, chop, chop. Anyway, whatever, let's move on. Uh, it's a supposed... The Book of Mormon supposes uh, migration of Israelites from 680 B.C., before Christ, right, to the American continent, okay, but does not contain explicit Mormon doctrines. So the Book of Mormon is more of like their supposed history, etc., blah, blah, okay. The other ones, they get more of their doctrine from. Now, supposedly these Israelites in 600 B.C. lapsed into apostasy once they got here into supposedly the Americas. And remember, we've already had a whole study where there is how much archaeological evidence for any of this stuff? Zero. Okay, but whatever. And, uh, and although their story was preserved on what? Golden plates, they say. Okay. And it was written in what? Not just Egyptian. Man, does this sound cool. Reformed Egyptian. Oh. Okay, there is no such thing. We'll get to that in a second. Uh, Joseph Smith then supposedly translated the plates by the gift and power of God. Now, we're just quoting Doctrines and Covenants 135, verse 3. Okay. Is what that is. However, Reformed Egyptian does not exist, is your blank, <laughs> as a language period. It's make-believe. It's a story. He made it up. All right? Now, he's going to get caught on it. As you're going to see, he had a tactic and he to continue this Egyptian theme. We'll get to that in a second. The golden plates, though, uh, as the story keyword goes, okay, were returned to the angel Moroni after they were transcribed, and Moroni turned them to heaven. Well, isn't that convenient, right? You try to witness to the people, and they say, well, that part of the Bible is incorrect. These are, you know, right. Well, that's convenient, right? All right, well, let's take a look at these golden plates that you transcribed on, the supposed language that nobody can find called Reformed Egyptian. Uh, I gave them back. <laughs> they went to heaven. Can't find them. Well, that's convenient. And then, right, then, listen, there were no reliable witnesses who even saw the tablets. Rhymes with, that's convenient. Again, that's three times in a row. You gotta get... So let's take a look at our first video of this and the supposed witnesses to these golden plates. Were they even real in the first place? I don't think so at all. A key, what's the key word tonight? Sorry. Not about a man named Jed, but a man named Joseph Smith. But let's take a look at the golden plates. In 1823, Joseph Smith was visited by an angel who told him of the existence of the golden plates a record of ancient Middle Eastern peoples who had emigrated to North America. Many years later, Smith would identify that angel as Moroni, the last survivor of those ancient peoples and the last author of the plates. Later still, Smith identified the angel as Nephi, the first author of the plates. Today, LDS literature has been standardized to show that the angel was indeed Moroni. In any case, this angel told Smith where he could find the golden plates, and using his seer stone as a guide, Smith unearthed the plates from beneath a large stone on the hill Cumorah. Unfortunately, because Smith did not obey the angel's instructions concerning their retrieval, the plates vanished back into the ground. It wasn't until four years later, in 1827, that Smith was able to obtain the golden plates again. While transporting them to his home, he was attacked by his fellow money diggers, who felt they deserved a share of the treasure. But he fended off his assailants running three miles to his home, all the while carrying his large book of gold. Later in 1842, Smith would describe the golden plates as being a six inch thick stack of six by eight inch metal pages held together by three rings. This he kept either in a wooden box or under a cloth because the angel had told him not to show it to any unauthorized people. While translating the plates, Smith was told that three witnesses would be allowed to see the plates by faith. These men were Oliver Cowdery, Martin Harris, and David Whitmer. Although the plates were actually in Whitmer's house, the men went out into the woods to pray, where they saw a vision of an angel showing them the plates. The testimony of these three witnesses is found at the beginning of every Book of Mormon to validate the existence of the golden plates. Later, all three of these witnesses were excommunicated from the church. Later, another group of witnesses was allowed to see the plates. Of these eight men, Seven of them were immediate family members of either Joseph Smith or David Whitmer. They supposedly saw the plates directly 
without an angelic visit. But statements from some witnesses later in life indicate that they saw the plates spiritually, not physically. Other people testified that they handled the plates through a cloth, but never actually saw them. The issue was put to rest, however, when Smith returned the plates to the angel after he finished translating them. According to Brigham Young, when Smith returned the plates, the hill Cumorah opened up into a large cave, revealing wagon loads of other plates and treasures. These were all the surviving records and artifacts of the ancient peoples of the Book of Mormon. And although the Hill Cumorah is a popular LDS tour site today in New York, none of these plates or artifacts have ever been recovered to validate Smith's story. Hmm. Can't find the plates, can't find this cave, can't find the cave with all these other artifacts, can't find none of stuff. Oh, and by the way, we, as we saw before, you can't find any money that was mentioned, you can't find any weaponry that was existing, you can't find nothing that existed. Why? Because the key word is story about a man named Joseph Smith, okay, and the religion that he concocted with all due respect. There, there's no such thing as the witness. And again, how convenient that is, right? With the witnesses, the ones that you say that you still have in the Book of Mormon uh, eventually got excommunicated. Well, why did they get excommunicated, but you have them as witnesses? That doesn't jive. And then these other guys, uh, well, it was a spiritual. You know what my summation is based on the evidence? There was no golden plates. Right? In fact, we're going to demonstrate it's impossible. Now, key word, we're going to get this in just a second. Remember what he had said, that little nugget there, that he got these golden plates and his fellow what? Money diggers, which is treasure seekers. Money diggers was a witchcraft technique that people use looking for treasure. They chased him for what? Three feet? 300 yards? Football field? Three miles. So he's got these golden plates. Oh, yeah, wait till we get to that. Are you kidding me? This is a story, right? We're going to see that again. Let's take a look at that. The golden plates. Now, again, the golden plates, this is the whole supposed source, what Joseph Smith translated on the one of the three sources. Remember, they're sources. They say Bible, but it's not. But the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, and the Pearl of Great Price. This is on the Book of Mormon. The Book of Mormon supposedly came from these mythical golden plates, okay? And then, of course, he uh, returned them conveniently, so we can't ever find them. Got to take his word for it. And these witnesses who maybe saw them technically, but only spiritually, but then you excommunicate them. That was kind of weird. But anyway, whatever. Uh, uh, then listen to what it says. Okay, now, the gold plates, you read uh, th their version of it. They say the gold plates were, weighed anywhere from 30 to 60 pounds. Okay, that's, that's a pretty hefty load, right? 30, and you're running for three miles. And you're not just running for three miles. You're running away from people who are excited about chasing you to get you to take you out. So, I mean, you got to be running seriously fast. And you got 30 to 60 pounds. But what is it really even that much? <laughs> no, I think it's going to be a lot more. How heavy were those gold plates? And we can do the calculations based on uh, his uh, description. But even before you get to how much these things really weighed, if they really existed, I don't think they did, obviously. But an interesting fact of history is this, is that when Smith was a young boy, and I quote, he went through an excruciating surgery on his leg that caused him to walk with a limp for the rest of his life. First major problem right there. And this is a well-known fact. So you're running from these guys who are trying to get these gold plates from you for three miles, but you got a limp. And you're carrying supposedly 30 to 60 pounds on top of that. And again, it ain't like it's a nice, clean pathway. In the middle of the desert, there's nothing there. You're going through, have you been in western New York? Hills and trees, and you're... But you got a major mega limp. What? I don't think so, man. That doesn't jive, right? And, uh, and again, these guys are chasing him down. Now, he gives us the dimensions. And I quote, Smith stated, These records were engraven on plates which had the appearance of gold. Each plate was six inches wide, eight inches long, bound together in a volume as leaves of a book with three rings running through the hole. You saw a picture depicting it there uh, on the video. Now, paintings of Smith show him receiving the plates with outstretched arms, okay, or sometimes resting on a knee. I don't know, take your pick, whatever. Uh, but again, if they really existed, how much did they really weigh based on his own dimensions? Well, it's actually been calculated. Gold weighs 1,204 pounds, it's heavy, per cubic foot. So if we use his dimensions, we can correctly conclude that the plates were one-sixth 
of a cubic foot. In other words, if the plates were made as gold, like he claimed, and the angel Moroni claimed to be, they would have weighed 200 pounds. Now, wait a second. So you mean to tell me, this is your version, not mine. I'm just going by your words, your account, that we're supposed to be trustworthy and true. You got these golden plates. Based on your dimensions, we can calculate 200 pounds. How much does a bag of cement weigh, approximately? 50 pounds. Do the math. You've got two bags under this arm of cement, two bags of cement on this arm of cement, and you're walking with a limp. And for three miles, not three feet until you turn the corner and they all fell over the hard tack, and whoo, that was close. <laughs> Dropped the load. Three miles. Yeah, big head start. Now, now they will have a caveat. Now, you know what they will say? You know what they'll say? He was supernaturally empowered to run that. <laughs> oh, come on. Are you serious? The whole thing doesn't add up, okay? And again, you're jumping over this. It ain't like some track, you know, rec, you know thing. It's all nice and clean and flat and whatever. It's just, anyway, so that's the whole account. I don't, I'm sorry. I don't believe they exist in the first place. And this is just going off your own words. It, it does, nothing adds up. Why? Because once you start logically looking at all, he, he hodgepodge everything together. Guess what? It's called lying. Lying catches up with you. Right? You're making up a story, but you're trying to say it's absolutely true. Even more true than what we got. Okay? Now, so he basically, again, supposedly returned him to this Moroni character, and who supposedly went back to heaven. But again, like which heaven? Because you got more than one heaven. We saw that last time. Okay? But, uh, so we can't check it out. Okay? But, now, he says, of supposedly, another thing you got to take his name or word for, is on these plates... Right on these plates was not just Egyptian; it was reformed Egyptian. Man, that sounds that sounds pretty intriguing. Okay, now here's the problem with that: uh, that is a completely unknown language to linguists and Egyptologists anywhere. Period on the planet. Scholarly reference works on languages do not acknowledge the existence of either a reformed Egyptian language or even a reformed uh, Egyptian script. As the Mormons uh, would say, there is, again, zero archaeological evidence, zero linguistic evidence of any, listen, not just of an existence of a so-called reformed Egyptian, but there is no archaeological or linguistic evidence of any Egyptian kind of language ever being used in this time frame in the Americas, period. That's the facts. So what does that tell you? With all due respect, based on the facts, you're making up a story, again, is the theme uh, for tonight. Okay, but again, he said he was able to supernaturally translate this supposed reformed Egyptian on these supposed plates. Now, remember what we saw before in a few studies back when it came to translating with this witchcraft issue? What was the method that he actually used to translate, supposedly, this Book of Mormon? He didn't even look at these supposed plates, remember? They were off over here. What was he doing? He was using the witchcraft technique. He put a seer stone into a hat stuck it up to his head to block out the light and then that's how he got the translation supposedly and then the other guy supposedly wrote it down he wasn't even looking at the plates then why do you need the plates why are you making a big deal with the plates and the reformed egyptian you never even looked at it you stuck your head in a hat and looked at a rock just going by your own words it doesn't make up it sounds to me like a story which is the theme for tonight all right all right now again he didn't even look at him but supposedly he was able to translate this reformed edition on something he didn't look at now they have something in existence what's called the anthon i'll just do capital anthon transcript now this anthon transcript okay is supposed to be they said well we, okay we can't show you the golden plates all right and uh you just got to take our word for it and uh okay but but, but we do have evidence of a piece of what was transcribed from this supposed reformed Egyptian on these supposed golden plates. And that's this Anthon script. I wish I could show you the picture of it. But basically, it's a little piece of paper, right? And, uh, and, and these are not my words, somebody else's. I'll get to that in a second. They look like doodlings, right? And this is supposed to be uh, like a, a legend. Of, here's the characters, and this is how they used to translate them. And it's just like, it just feel like, have you ever been to like Denny's and you're waiting for your food and your kids are bored? What do they do? That's why they give them crayons, right? But then they start, they go, you know, they just start doing, 
or at least that's how I draw, so that's my normal drawing. But anyway, <laughs> but when you look at this anthem script, that's all it is. It's just doodlings, man. The guy made it up. Okay, but it is not at all what he said. And let me, and the, let me explain to you, okay, and it's supposed to be a legend, a little, and this is supposed to be proof. See, this is a piece of, a, of, of just a little bit of the transcription thing that was going on here to prove to you this reformed Egyptian thing. Well, the reason why it's called the Anthon script is because uh, the colleague of Smith, Martin Harris, one of the big wigs, right? Okay, uh, he uh, took the he presented this Anthon script thing to this guy named Charles Anthon from a Columbia College professor, right? That's why it's called the Anthon script. Okay, and uh, they said, well, he here he is. He's a classical noted scholar, and he said that this was in fact. Reformed Egyptian. This is so. This is our whatever. I found Mr. Anthon's actual historical account of this script because they did present it to him. But I will share with you what he really said. Listen to this quote: "The whole story about my pronouncing the Mormon inscription to be Reformed Egyptian's hieroglyphics is perfectly false." Upon examining the paper in question, I soon came to the conclusion that it was all a trick, perhaps a hoax. I have frequently conversed with friends on the subject since the Mormon excitement began, and well remember that the paper contained anything else but Egyptian hieroglyphics. So that's a lie. This guy did not say that, oh, yeah, he's a scholar, and it's real. No. In fact, he's not the only one. Even people today, right? Because you can get a supposed uh, look at this supposed reformed Egyptian transcript, it's not even Egyptian at all. Again, it's doodlings. And, and I quote, no scholars acknowledge the existence of either reformed Egyptian language or even this reformed Egyptian script. Uh, in uh, John Wilson, he's the professor of Egyptology at the University of Chicago. So I think he know the language. He said, quote, from time to time, there are allegations that picture writing, you know, because that's the Egyptian writing, they have a, you know, duck or not a duck or whatever that thing was, a bird and you know, it's picture writing, hieroglyphics. Right? He said, from time to time, there are allegations that picture writing has been found in America. Right? In no case has a professional Egyptologist been able to recognize those characters, period, as Egyptian hieroglyphs. There's no example of that. You can't find them in the Americas. From our standpoint, there is no such language as, quote, reformed Egyptian. These are the experts. This is what they do for a living. Another guy, a guy named Klaus Bear, he's the Egyptologist of the University of Chicago, right? And he called the characters on this Anton script, this is his words, not mine, nothing but doodlings. Some guy just making something up. Look at that, it's reformed Egyptian. No, it's me, doodling. That's what he said, I'm not saying. And another guy, a scholar, said that they, and this is his words, not mine, so don't say I'm making fun of somebody. He said, these characters, he says, they don't look like reformed Egyptian. They look more like deformed English. <laughs> I didn't say it, he did. And these are the experts, right? I don't know about you, but it's starting to sound like somebody made up a story is the theme for tonight, if you're catching on. Right, now, now, okay, so he's making up this story, right? And they got this thing, but I don't know if it's starting to fall apart or whatever. But he, he, he's got to keep it going, because this is the basis of the Book of Mormon. It was on this... He, he, of all language, he could have said Swahili, reformed Swahili, but no, he picked Egyptian, so he's got to keep it going, right? Well, what about the other writings? Well, he also, there's out there what's called the Joseph Smith papyri, and that is 11 Egyptian papyrus fragments that were owned by Joseph Smith. He bought them from a guy, and I'll get to that in a second, okay? Joseph Smith, uh, supposedly, you think, well, what's he doing with this other stuff? And this is stuff he purchased. This was not stuff that he found supposedly under a hill on the golden plate. Right? It wasn't delivered by an angel. He bought it. But the, the concern is he took these now other ones that he purchased from that are Egyptian, this papyri, and he translated it uh, supposedly into the Book of Mormon or Book of Abraham. The Book of Abraham is in one of their other ones, uh, the Pearl of Great Price. And this is one of the books they build their doctrine off of. So he got it off some stuff. Now, let me share with you where these things came from. The papyrus fragments are uh, parts of some papyri and 11 mummies, which were discovered in Thebes by a guy named Antonio Labello between 1818 and 1822. The mummies were then shipped from there to New York, where they were purchased by another guy, a guy named Michael Chandler in 1833. The next two years, this Michael Chandler guy goes around touring the eastern United States, okay, 
displaying and selling off these Egyptian artifacts. Listen, in July 1835, Chandler brought four of the mummies that were left and several papyri that came with them, okay, the Egyptian writing, to Kirtland, Ohio, okay, which was then the headquarters for the Mormon church. Now listen, although the Rosetta Stone had been found in 1799, uh, it still wasn't, you know, the knowledge base of people knowing emphatically what the uh, Egyptian characters meant. You know, it's not like today you throw something on the internet, everybody can get access to it, whatever. Okay, that wasn't really known until the 1850s. Well, this is in 1835. Listen to this. But legend had it, listen, Chandler asked Joseph Smith, he's now at the headquarters, he's traveling around trying to sell this stuff off, right? He goes to Joseph Smith there in Kirtland, Ohio, and to look at the scrolls, and he actually asked Joseph Smith to give him some insight. What does this Egyptian writing mean? Why? Because the story had gone out that Smith, he got notoriety that he was able to decipher reformed Egyptian, right? So you get it? So this guy goes, well, what do you, what do you think it is? Listen to this. Shortly after that, Smith, he purchased four of the mummies. He bought them from the guy, okay? And at least five of the papyrus documents for $2,400. Now listen, I, and I did the calculation. I go, I wonder, man, you can find anything on the internet. Isn't this wild? And so I, sure enough, I says, well, how much was the dollar value of $2,400 in 1835? You know what that comes up to be? That is about $63,000 he paid for this. Now, remember, what's the historical account? When he came out with the Book of Mormon, what did he have to do? He didn't have no cash, right? They had to basically scrounge up some money just to get the thing rolling, right? right? And, so all, and you're going to pay $63,000, right? Oh, and by the way, remember when he didn't have the cash? He had a revelation that God told him that this guy was supposed to pay for it. And one of the guys say, I ain't paying for it. <laughs> you false prophet right there. I mean, whatever. So you, whoa, you paid a huge amount of cash for this stuff, right? Okay, now here's the problem. Okay, again, it's from these traveling mummies and the papyri that came from him that he supposedly translated. Not the Book of Mormon, that's the whole golden plate issue, which is not in existence. The plates or the reformed Egyptian. But this is now the Pearl of Great Price, the book in there, the book of Abraham, okay? The LDS Church published, it, I don't have time, it switched, it, he had them, then it switched through different people and whatever. But basically in 1967, I believe, the LDS Church bought them, they have them, and in 1968, shortly after there, of course, this is proof. We've got this papyri, this Egyptian, because you've got to keep that Egyptian thing going, right? Because the whole thing's based on reformed Egyptian on these supposed plates, right? Well, here it is. So basically, back he got these things. Then he produced, all of a sudden, this so-called Book of Mormon. And from these, the work was canonized in 1880. And it's a part of, even today, the Mormon literature called the Pearl of Great Price. And it's, again, a major source for their doctrinal beliefs. Not the only one, but it's a major source. Right? Now, here's the problem. Upon examination by professional Egyptologists, you know what those things are? Because you can get them. Listen, they are fragments identified as Egyptian funeral texts, including one called the Breathing Permit of Hor, H-O-R, Egyptian god, I believe, uh, one of them, and the Egyptian Book of the Dead. And this is supposed to be something that he gets from whatever, and that's, they, can, they can see him, right? And, and this is their words, not mine. As a result, the Book of Abraham, critics say, was a work of fiction created by Smith. Hey, that sounds like a familiar word tonight. What's, what are they saying? Story. <laughs> it's crazy, okay? And so you go, well, what, what did he derive it from, right? Because this is, they know what it is. It's Egyptian funeral text, portions of from the Egyptian Book of the Dead. They can read it now. They know it now. Well, listen to this. Nearly half of the Book of Abraham shows a dependence on the King James Version of the Book of Genesis. And I quote, it seems, and this is another expert examiner, it seems clear, because he's not... He's not even taking it from these texts because he can't read it. He's making it up, right? So in the, the book of Abraham, in the Pearl of Great Price, it, quote, seems clear that Smith had the Bible open to Genesis as he dictated much of the book of Abraham. He basically is looking at it and copying. As we're going to see in a little bit, he would change, like, well, it's, it's Antipas. No, it's Antipi. It's, you know, <laughs> come on. Right? He's making up a story uh, as you go. And this is, again, this is their source of authority. This is what they say they have better than us. It's much more reliable. Okay? Now, it's also from this book of Abraham is where they get 
the planet Kolob, right? And the planet Kolob uh, is what they claim to be the star nearest to the presence of God, which one? Uh, and the governing star in all of the universe, right? So and I don't think it even came from the Egyptian text, but that's just him making stuff up. Also, this book of Abraham also explores the pre-mortal existence, right? As we saw last week, it's not true. Okay, and again, let me just quote to you one guy who's an expert on this uh, uh, Egyptian text. It's a guy named Arthur Mace. He's the curator for the Department of the Egyptian Art in New York's Metropolitan Museum of Art. Whew. And here's what he said in, re in reference to these papyri from these mummies that he purchased for an exorbitant amount of price and whooped up this thing called the Book of Abraham. Quote, I return, and this was in 1912. This was exposed a long time ago. He said, I return herewith under a separate cover, the pearl of great price. The book of Abraham is hardly necessary to say, quote, is a pure fabrication. It's inaccurate copies of well-known scenes of Egyptian funeral papyri placed under the heads of mummies. In fact, there are about 40 of these known in museums, and they're all very similar in uh, an, uh, a character. Joseph Smith's interpretation of these is, his words, not mine, a confused mixture of nonsense from beginning to end. Egyptian characters can now be read almost as easily as Greek, and five-minute study in an Egyptian uh, gallery in any museum should be enough to convince any educated man of the clumsiness of the imposture. He made it up. So what's this expert saying? Story. He's making this up. This is a whole bunch of baloney, right? With all due respect. And he says, and listen, the transliterated text from the recovered papyri that he bought, he says, on top of that, contains no direct references, either historical or even textual, to Abraham. Yet this is supposed to be the book of Abraham in the Prophet Price. The sign that Smith said in these Egyptian characters that says, well, that's the sign of Abraham. He says, it's not. It is the hieratic version of the letter W in Egyptian. So, and, we, and they know it. You're just making this up. You didn't know what it said. You're just making it up. But nobody else knew what it was either, so you got away with it for a while. Until the Rosetta knowledge began to kick in and people could check you out. Back in 1912, this was exposed. 1912. Okay? And it has no phonetic or semantic relationship at all to Abraham, period. Okay? So he's making up. Now, you contrast that to our Bible. In our Bible, it's written over a 1,500-year uh, span, over 40 different generations, written by more than 40 different authors from every different walk of life. You've got uh, kings, peasants, philosophers, fishermen, poets, statements, uh, statesmen, scholars. Moses was a political leader. Peter was a fisherman. Amos was a herdsman. Joshua was a military general. Nehemiah was a cupbearer. Daniel was a prime minister. Luke was a doctor. Solomon was a king. Matthew, a tax collector. Paul was a rabbi. Written in different places. Moses in the wilderness. Jeremiah was in a dungeon. Daniel on a hillside and then on a palace. Paul was inside prison walls. Luke was traveling. John was on the Isle of Patmos. Others were in rigors of military campaign. Written at different times. Uh, David in times of war. Solomon in times of peace. Written in different moods. Some at the heights of joy. Others heights of despair written on three different continents asia africa and europe three different languages hebrew of some portion in aramaic and then the new testament of course in koine greek these people didn't know each other from different generations so they couldn't cross-reference whatever and yet our book the bible never once contradicts itself and has the same message through and through man on his best day could never whoop up in the bible now guess what if man does try to whoop up his own bible you know what you get this. That's why it's messed up. Because this is not from God. This is a man whooping something up, and that's why it's so flawed. Right? Now, the Book of Mormon also, let's continue on your workbook there. The Book of Mormon, your workbook says 2,000 corrections. It's actually 4,000. I think in our first study, I actually said 40,000. I correct that. It's 4,000. 4,000 corrections, so make that note in your workbooks, not two, it's 4,000 corrections made to the Book of Mormon since the original publication. Now, this is strange since Smith claimed that the translation was what? Divinely given. Well, if it's divinely given, why do you got to keep fixing it? Now, that's what you get when man whoops something up, but not with God, all right? And again, you contrast it with the Bible. And see, this was the big issue when the discovery, as we saw before in our apologetic studies, Okay, with the Dead Sea Scrolls. 
Right? The Dead Sea Scrolls, okay, the earliest copy we had of the Old Testament prior to the Dead Sea Scrolls was about 900 A.D. Well, the Dead Sea Scrolls came in about 125 B.C., so that's just over 1,000 years difference. And when the Dead Sea Scrolls came out, everybody, the skeptics were, ah, ha, 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 we're going to get you Christians now because I, we know there's been major big-time changes over 1,000 years because what's their charge? It's a book whooped up by man. They frankly are expecting things like this. Well, and what happened when it came out? There is zero doctrinal change, and what changes there were is just minor punctuation or minor spelling changes, and part of that was because the Qumran community spoke in a different dialect. It's like some people spell different words than when they're from the south, right? But, it's, but there's no real textual changes, no real word changes, just minor punctuation. And, and let me give you some examples. Be like this. This is how minor it was. And this is over a thousand years, right? You got, you know, today some people would say, well, hey, let's go to the theater. You go to other places today, how do they spell it? Theatre, Right? But it's the same word. There's no like, oh, it's a change. It's a man whooped it. No, just a difference in spelling, right? Let me give you another example. Uh, and this happens, uh, uh, we get some you know, feedback from Canada. Well, we say Savior, S-A-B-I-O-R. Well, how do they spell it? And over in Europe, Savior, okay, with that, right? Now, did that change? That's a major doctrinal change. That's a great... No, it's just a minor spelling. This is the kind of stuff we're doing. Let me give you one more example. We'll move on, right? Some people would say, well, hey, it's chicken, well, other people, rightly so, would say, no, it's evil. It's the same thing, right? You can say what it is. It's just what... Right, that one was, I made that one up. But the other ones are real. <laughs> you know that one's right, right? But that, that's the differences we're talking about. Minor punctuation, a couple little different adjustments on the spelling. That's it. And mainly because the difference is because they had a different dialect. That's it. I mean, that's amazing. No man, you could, if, if man whooped it up, you know, and, and it was just... You know, carefully just word of mouth, and they hopefully the next generation got it right, as the skeptic would say, and that's which is ignorance of the copying standards and all that stuff. There's no, no, that had to come from God. Only God can preserve that to that degree. Well, that's not what you get with the Book of Mormon. Now, one uh, referring to our Bible, one guy said this: the Christian can take the whole Bible in his hand and say without fear or hesitation that he holds in it the true Word of God, handed down without any essential loss from generation throughout the centuries. That's based on the facts. That's based on the track record. You don't get that with Mormonism. Because when you start bringing up this issue that, hey, uh, you guys made 4,000 changes to your text since it's printed. Oh, by the way, since, you know what, 1830-ish? This isn't like stretched out over the Bible timeline. Centuries. But see, even since just then, you've made 4,000. Oh, it's just, it's just like, you know, you know, punctuation so, mm -mm. whole chunks taken out whole things inserted in in fact let's take a look at that real quick tonight all mormon scriptures have been subject to change over the years some changes are more substantial than others but they all raise questions about how mormons regard communication from god the current edition of the book of mormon contains almost 4,000 changes from the first edition these consist of spelling and grammatical errors word choice changes and inserted phrases. A change in one verse replaced the name King Benjamin with King Mosiah, because Benjamin was already dead. Of the 300 proper names in the Book of Mormon, 141 of them are from the Bible, and more seem to just be variations on Bible names. For instance, the biblical Abinadab becomes Abinadi, Kish becomes Akish, and Antipas becomes Antipas. Furthermore, several Book of Mormon stories directly mirror Bible stories. These include Noah and the Jaredites, building boats and filling them with animals, Lazarus and Ammon, being raised from the dead, Herod and Achish, wherein a woman dances in exchange for someone's head to be brought to her on a platter, and Paul and Alma, both persecutors of the church, converted by a vision, and then become traveling missionaries. The last three of those stories mentioned even use surprising amounts of the exact same wording from the Bible. Another source parallel is Alma chapter 40, which contains six points of doctrine matching the 32nd chapter of the Westminster Confession, with only minor changes in wording. A look at an atlas will also reveal many startling coincidences. For instance, it was on the hill Cumorah that Moroni led Smith to the Golden Plates. While off the coast of East Africa, there is an island group that bears the name Comoro, and its capital is Moroni. 
Other contemporary place names that correspond to Book of Mormon places include Oneida and Oneida, Tinicum and Tiancum, Antrim and Antum, and Angola and Angola. An important change in the Pearl of Great Price is found in the Articles of Faith. Article number 4 used to state that the ordinances of salvation were faith, repentance, baptism, and the laying on of hands. By 1902, this was changed to say that these were only the first principles of the gospel. This was to reflect the added qualifications for salvation, including temple work. The Doctrine and Covenants, which was first published in 1835, contained two parts, the Lectures of Faith and sections of Revelations. In 1921, the Lectures of Faith, which taught conflicting views of God, were removed. The revelation in Doctrine and Covenants section 5 was originally published saying that Smith would receive no other gift than the ability to translate the Book of Mormon. A few years later, it was changed to say that this was only his first gift, and he would receive others. Section 7 was supposedly translated from a parchment written by the hand of the Apostle John, but over a hundred words were added to the middle of the text from the time it was first published begging the question as to whether or not those words were actually on the parchment. And finally, in 1876, section 101, which explicitly prohibited polygamy, was removed and replaced with section 132, which allowed polygamy. Mormons explain away changes by saying that prophets can make mistakes, and God changes his mind. These changes would be considered relatively minor if it weren't for the claims that the Book of Mormon was given by God word for word from the Golden Plates, and that it was the most correct of any book on earth. It's the most correct on the earth. Why do you got these kind of changes? It ain't just, oh, forgot a period. Oh, hey, got a comma. That's not good grammar. Whole sections are changed because you get caught with false teaching and even your own writings contradict. So if anything, we're helping you clean it up. But notice what he says. Prophets can get it wrong and God changes his mind. What? Again, boy, that's convenient. The problem is that's not what the Bible says. Open your Bibles real quick to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 18. And uh, let's start with verse 20 there real quick. Deuteronomy 18. 18 and verse 20. Verse 20, we'll read down just to finish up that chapter. But a prophet who presumes to speak in my name, God's name, Anything God's speaking here, I have not commanded him to say, or a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods, notice the little G there, uh, must be what? Must be put to death. And you yourselves must say, well, well how, how can we know when a message has not been spoken of the Lord? If a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not, uh, what do you complain? Uh, uh, in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is a message the Lord has not spoken. Why? Because God doesn't lie. He's holy. Lying is sin. Plus, he's omniscient. He, no, that's part of being a supreme being. You're not only self-existent, all-powerful, everywhere present. You are all-knowing. There's some, not anything he gets wrong ever. He's holy. He knows everything. How could he get it wrong? So how in the world could you sit there and say, you're a prophet of God. This is a message from God. It doesn't come to pass. God takes it serious. Get rid of that guy. And he, that's what he says. He says, and he says, listen, and it's, the Lord has not spoken that. The prophet has spoken presumptuously. Do not be afraid of him. Get rid of him. Run from it. But they just said, listen, oh, by the way, yeah, we might have got some things wrong. But don't you see the prophets can get it wrong? That's not what God says. He doesn't get it wrong. Never gets it wrong. But if a prophet does get it wrong, what are you supposed to do? Have nothing to do with them. Right? Oh, and by the way, as we close real quick, did you know that uh, Joseph Smith made prophecies? Guess what's the problem with those prophecies as a supposed prophet of God? He got them wrong. And I'll just give you real quick as we close uh, several examples. Number one, he said that Jesus would return within 56 years. Okay? That's what he said. Now, uh, if you do the math from when this was done, uh, that would have meant he should have arrived back in 1891. This is in the History of the Church, Volume 2, page 189. It didn't happen. Right, right there, uh, false prophet, we're done, we're done with you, God never gets it wrong, you have presu uh, presumed, uh, spoken presumptuously, we have nothing to do with you, I'm not recommending killing them in the Old Testament, okay, but listen, you, we, you're done. Another one, he said the prophecy, he prophesied that the temple would be built in Missouri within Smith's generation, Doctrine and Covenants, 84, 2 through 5 and 31, did that happen? No, it didn't, okay, uh, in fact, the Mormons were driven out of Jackson County in the Mississippi there in 1833. He also said that all nations 
would be involved in the American Civil War, Doctrine and Covenants 87, 1 through 3. A couple nations, but it wasn't all nations. You got it wrong. Okay. He also prophesied that the earth would tremble and the sun would be hidden not in, in not many days. That was uh, uh, December 27, 1832. Notice the phrase there, not many days. This is the Doctrine and Covenants 88, 87. Well, once again, bust out that calculator, Bobby. Okay, you know how long it's been? It's been uh, approximately uh, 67, 68,000 days, or about 184 years since that proclamation. That's not many days? How many guys would like to have that liberality when it comes to you know, paying your taxes and filling out that form? I'd like to have... Now, if that's your version of not many days, hey... Which <laughs> is crazy. And the big one in close, he prophesied that Isaiah 11 was about to be fulfilled. That's the pearl of great price. History verse 40. Okay. What? What's that? What's the significance? That's the classic text of the millennial kingdom where the wolf will dwell with the lamb. The leper will lie down with the kid, the calf, and the young lion and the fatling together. And the little boy or child will lead them. Excuse me. You put the wolf and the lamb together today. Lamb chops. You put the calf and the lion together today. Cow chops, okay? <laughs> you put the cow and the bear grazing today, cow chops too, okay? The lion does not eat straw like an ox. The lion still eats meat, and it's not a good idea to have your kids play around a den of cobras. CPS be coming and get you every day, right? You do something like that. I say, what? So you not only got it all wrong, okay, but uh, you're a false prophet, and the word of God does not change his mind. God doesn't get it wrong. Okay, it should have been rejected. And that's what it says here. We'll finish this up there uh, in this section. In addition, Smith provided several prophecies that did not come true, showing himself to be a false prophet, according to what we just read in Deuteronomy. Okay, is what we're going to do. And then, Lord willing, next time what we're going to see is, did you know, on top of all this, that Joseph Smith actually came up with his version of our Bible? Did you know that? And it's a total hack job, obviously. He hacked, and just like everything else, hack, chop, hack, chop, whatever there. But did you know, and again, because why? They say, well, we believe in the Bible, tongue-in-cheek, okay? Uh, but it's, uh, it's, you know, it's corrupted. So he goes about, if you will, fixing it. Here's the problem. The Mormons refuse to use his version of the Bible. I wonder why, Right? And then now you're in a major conundrum. You say he was a prophet of God, and he's got a better source of truth in this book. Well, he supposedly fixed this for us, but you refuse to use it, and you specifically use only the KJV version, which you admit, in your opinion, is a corrupted version. So now you've got a problem, because now you're using a corrupted version, which it's not, but you say it is, instead of your prophet that you base everything off of. Oh, and by the way, you say you still have prophets today in existence. How come they're not fixing it for us if it's so messed up? Why do you continue to use, by your words, it's not true, a corrupted version of the Bible? Doesn't make sense, but we'll get into that, Lord willing, next time. Well, hi, this is Pastor Billy Crone of Sunrise Baptist Church and Get a Life Ministries, and I hope you enjoyed today's study. But in closing, before you go, let me ask you one final question. If you were to die today, are you sure that you go to heaven and not hell? You see, here's the problem. The Bible says that nobody automatically gets to go to heaven. And that's because God is holy and we are not. The Bible says that the wages of our sin or our unholiness or the wrong things that we have done have separated us from God. And the wages of our sin or unholiness uh, means that we deserve to die and receive God's judgment to go to hell and not heaven. In other words, we're disqualified for heaven. And that's because God being holy and us being not, the two cannot mix. So what are we going to do? Well, that's bad enough. The other problem is we don't even want to admit this dilemma, even though God already knows it all. And so out of love, God gave us something called the Ten Commandments to show us that we're really disqualified for heaven. We're not holy. We're not perfect like him. Uh, let's take a, a look at just a few of those uh, here today. Uh, the Bible says, the Ten Commandments says, you shall not bear false witness. That means lying. How many of you ever told a lie before? Well, those of you who didn't raise your hand, you just did. Okay, let's be honest, folks. Let's not tell another lie. We've all lied. Well, believe it or not, that disqualifies you for heaven. That's how holy God is. He is the truth. He does not lie. And so that makes us a liar. Another of the Ten Commandments says you shall not steal. Okay, 
How many have ever taken anything without permission? Well, all of our hands should have went up at that one. Uh, we've already said we're a bunch of liars. Okay, well, we've all done that. And it doesn't have to be a bank. Uh, it could be a pencil in the third grade. Uh, that means that we're a thief, okay? The Bible says that God is so holy, even his name is holy. And that's why one of the Ten Commandments says, you shall not use the Lord's name in vain. Hey, folks, isn't it ironic how uh, now the blessed name of Jesus Christ, the Bible says there's no other name under heaven by which men might be saved, Jesus Christ, has now become a cuss word? Folks, the Bible says that's the sin of blasphemy, okay? And folks, let's be honest, we've used God's name in vain uh, before. The Bible also says in the Ten Commandments, you shall not commit adultery. And Jesus takes the standard even higher. He says, listen, it's not just physical adultery. He says, surely I tell you that if you look at another person with lust in your eye, you've committed adultery in your heart. God looks at the heart. One more out of the Ten Commandments says, you shall not murder. And you might say, well, hey, I haven't done that one. Really? The Bible says that the sin of hatred is akin to the sin of murder. You, in other words, in your heart, wish they were dead. You pulled the trigger, if you will, in your own heart. And the Bible says God sees that, and it's just as bad. He knows the mind. He knows the hearts, the thoughts, and the intents that we have. Folks, that's just five out of the Ten Commandments. How are you doing? Not very well. None of us can keep them. They're God's x-ray to show us that we're disqualified. And so when, not if, your time comes, because we're all marching towards the grave at different speeds, you're going to have to stand before God, and you're going to have to uh, say who you really are. He already knows. Hey, God, let me into heaven. Uh, I'm, I'm a liar. I'm a thief. I'm a blasphemer, adulterer, and a murderer. Folks, the Bible is clear. Such people as these will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. That's the problem. Here's the good news. God so loved the world that he sent his one and only begotten son, Jesus Christ, that whoever believes in him, what he did on the cross, on our behalf, that we will not perish, we will not go to hell, but he will give us the gift of eternal life. Jesus died on the cross to forgive us of all of our sins. It's something that we don't earn, we, we, we can't earn. It's a gift, the Bible calls it, and a gift cannot be earned. He was taking the death penalty in our place. That's what the cross was of the day. And that if we would just ask Jesus Christ to forgive us of our sins and believe that in our heart that God raised him from the grave, showing that his death is satisfactory to God to forgive us of all of our sins, no matter what we've done, the Bible says we shall be saved. Uh, the Apostle Paul says that if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the grave, we will be saved. Let me give you a common analogy of what God's doing and what he did for us with Jesus dying on the cross on our behalf. Uh, in life, we know that people uh, can be sentenced for a crime uh, to where they're actually on death row. Uh, the courtroom scene has completely finished. The gavel has already sounded. Uh, they are going to jail, and they're just awaiting their time before they go to the death penalty. Uh, as they're sitting there in the jail cell, uh, it, it's a proven fact they did what they did. Everybody knows it. They're just waiting for that time for their uh, number to come up, so to speak, and walk down that hall and be executed. Uh, there's nothing they could do to reverse their crime. No amount of good works in that jail cell can reverse what they've done. It's too late. It's over. But believe it or not, there's one way that people even today can get off a death row. And that's if the one in authority, the governor, if he were to, out of mercy and kindness, nothing that the person did, because they don't earn it and they don't deserve it, and they can't earn it, if he would grant them what's called a pardon, out of the kindness of his heart, he has the authority to grant them a pardon and absolve them completely of their crimes uh, against the state. And did you know that there's actually been people that this has happened to, that the governor, out of mercy, has granted them a pardon as a gift, and they've gone down to the jail cell, and handed that person, extended it through the bars, here, I'm granting you a pardon. If you would just receive it, you can go free right now. And did you know that there's actually been people who've said, no, I don't want your pardon. And so what happened is of their own doing, even though they had a way out, they still had to go to the death penalty. Folks, can I tell you something? That's what God did for us with Jesus dying on the cross. He sent his son to take the death penalty in our place. 
He, God, has the authority to grant us through Jesus a complete pardon. And every day that you're still alive, God is extending to you spiritually this pardon. But a pardon does you no good unless you reach out and receive it by faith. Won't you do that today? Won't you call upon the name of Jesus Christ? Ask him to forgive you of all of your sins, to trust in his work on the cross, to pardon us from all of our crimes, our sins against God. God loves you. He wants a relationship with you. But there's only one way to heaven. It's Jesus. There's only one way to get off a death row. It's through the cross of Jesus Christ. Won't you do that right now? Well, this has been Pastor Billy Crone of Sunrise Baptist Church and, and Get a Life Ministries. And if there's anything that we can do for you, uh, please don't hesitate uh, to contact us. Uh, our number, our information will uh, come up here on the screen shortly. And uh, uh, if there's anything we could do for you, please don't hesitate to let us know. Uh, thank you for uh, joining us. And uh, remember, I hope to see you in heaven. God bless.